Good morning. It's 11 minutes before 8 a.m. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Today is Wednesday, August 24th, 2022. I'm Peter Apathy with Raven News. The rules governing short-term rentals in Sitka may be changing soon. When the Assembly met last night, it gave a green light to code changes that would affect new permits for short-term rentals in residential zones. Right now, a short-term rental is any property rented for less than 14 days, typically through sites like Airbnb and Verbo. In March, the Assembly failed to pass a one-year moratorium on new short-term rental permits. After that moratorium failed, some Assembly and Planning Commission members held a town hall seeking ideas to address the impact of short-term rentals on Sitka's housing market. Under the new ordinance, properties would only be eligible for a short-term rental permit if the property in question is the applicant's primary residence. That means the owner has to occupy the home for at least 180 days a year. The Planning Commission approved the ordinance in a 3-to-1 vote last week. The new rules would only apply to properties in residential zones that require a conditional use permit to operate. Existing short-term rentals would be exempt from most of the changes, and it would not affect bed-and-breakfast permits either. But the ordinance does add one new restriction that would affect existing rentals. All short-term rental permits will sunset when a property is sold, meaning they cannot be transferred to a new owner. The ordinance will come before the Assembly again on second reading at the first Assembly meeting in September. If approved, it will go into effect on September 14th. We'll have more coverage of last night's Sitka Assembly meeting on Raven News tonight at 518. A Coast Guard crew from Air Station Sitka medevaced a 65-year-old woman from a cruise ship in Cross Sound on Sunday night. Around 5 p.m., the command center in Juneau received word from the cruise ship Zoiderdam that a woman on the vessel was in need of medical attention. According to Aircraft Commander Lieutenant Eric Oredson, The woman had lost vision in one of her eyes due to an advanced eye infection and needed to see a specialist within hours. Oredson said his air crew met the boat some 30 miles off Chichikov Island, but low visibility thwarted their rescue efforts. The fog lifted in the sound and moved out, but out over the actual uh, open ocean, it was still super thick, so pretty much dense fog from the surface to about 1,000 feet. We got on scene about 7.30. And uh, we made comms with the cruise ship, but we couldn't actually see him down there. And they said the visibility was really poor, uh, about 0.1 miles down at the surface. Uh, So we were evaluating what what our course of action would be at that point. Um, Getting down to the water uh, in dense fog like that and then conducting a a medevac off the ship is obviously a very risky evolution. Hoisting itself is very risky to begin with. According to Oredson, the crew stayed airborne for almost an hour and a half deliberating before deciding not to attempt the hoist. Without boats able to perform a rescue from the water, the crew returned to Sitka to wait for better conditions. Down here we just have the air station, so if the Coast Guard is going to do medevac, it's almost always the helicopter. And that particular vessel uh, doesn't have, I guess, the little transport boats that they use to bring people in and out from shore, like if they anchor off. Uh, so we came back, refueled, and then took off again about 9.45. Uh, and by that point, the cruise ship had actually entered Sitka Sound, was out near St. Lazaria Island, and uh, completely in the clear. And so we went out and conducted the medevac. Oredson said the crew was able to complete the rescue within 45 minutes. 
The patient was then transported to emergency medical personnel waiting in Sitka and was later reported as being in stable condition. At the end of summer, hordes of salmon fill the streams and creeks around Lake Aleknagik. They have traveled thousands of miles from the ocean. These waterways are an important part of the salmon life cycle where adult fish come to spawn and then die. The fish aren't the only ones hanging out in these waters, though. Each year, researchers from the University of Washington's Alaska Salmon Program follow them upstream to survey the number of salmon that reach the spawning grounds. Earlier this month, KDLG's Catherine Moncure went out with the team to observe their work and brings us this story. Jackie Carter is a research scientist with the University of Washington's Alaska Salmon Program. Today, Carter and two university technicians are headed to collect samples from the spawning salmon in Yako Creek. After crossing Lake Aleknagik on a skiff, the opening of the creek comes into view with piles of thrashing, jumping fish in the shallow water. The heavy, foul smell of rotting salmon hits immediately, and skeletons line the shore. Carter says the researchers count all the fish, dead or alive. We literally have clickers in each hand, and we walk in and we click male, female, male, 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 female, male. Do your thumbs get sore? No. Your brain gets sore. <laughs> your thumbs can handle it better than your brain can. Carter says that researchers from the university have been coming up here every summer to collect data on these streams since 1946. The salmon counts usually peak in the first week of August, so the researchers aim to do most of their surveying in the middle of that period, on August 5th. They count the salmon and collect data on the fish, including how much time they spent in freshwater and the ocean. More recently, the team has also been recording how the fish die, if they deteriorated on their own or if they were killed by predators. Carter says she can already tell this year's count will be high, but the population can vary substantially year to year. The scientists don't use their research for advocacy work, she says. Instead, they want relevant data to inform current debates around development in the larger Bristol Bay watershed. With the whole pebble mine thing, we can use these data to say, well, look, these, these streams are really variable. You can't just look at one year and say, hey, this is a good place to spawn. Let's protect it. Or this, there's no fish here. Let's, we can do whatever we want. Um, so our long-term data really shows that things go up and down and up and down. And that is a valuable component of the ecosystem and keeps the whole ecosystem functioning. Today at Yako Creek, there are so many sockeye that it's difficult to walk through the water without accidentally kicking them. For most of their lives, these salmon are silver, but as they move through freshwater streams, they begin to decay. They don't eat in freshwater. Instead, they use the energy stored in their bodies to travel to the spawning grounds. In the process, the salmon's skin turns red and deteriorates. Their drive is to spawn before they die, but some of them don't make it long enough to lay eggs. Dead fish are all over the creek bed. A fallen tree branch is covered in them, like dust collected over time. The dead fish are just as important as the live animals. Carter explains that they bring nutrients from the ocean into the stream ecosystem. So the, the important nutrients are the, the carbon and the nitrogen, and that then gets into the terrestrial system. You know, it feeds the bears, it feeds the birds. You can find um, signals of marine nutrients in Basically everything, um, trees, grass. Carter picks up a few dead fish and throws them onto the bank of the stream. Another part of her work is to record the history of the salmon's lives, like how long they've been in each body of water. 
The researchers do this by studying a tiny bone inside the salmon's heads, called an otolith. Carter picks up a fish in one hand and a knife in the other. She saws open its head, revealing the dead brain inside. From there, she uses tweezers to gently pry out the otolith and wipe it clean. It's a thin sliver of bone that looks incredibly fragile. Up close, a series of light and dark rings are visible on the bone. Carter says the rings show how many years the adult salmon spent in fresh water and how many years it lived in salt water after that. This one is pretty clearly a 1-3. After cutting open a few more heads and storing the otoliths in sample jars, we return to the research camp. But the team will be back again tomorrow for more data collection. Once she and the team return to Seattle, they'll analyze the otoliths under microscopes and add their data to the years of research, nearly eight decades of it, that provide the foundation for understanding Bristol Bay's salmon population. Counting and cutting up decaying fish may not be for everyone, but Carter and the technicians think the job is pretty cool. In Aleknagik, I'm Catherine Munkier. A humpback whale calf appears to be okay after an encounter with a tour boat in Favorite Channel. The collision left some of the whale's skin on the boat's hull. Susie Tierlink is a coordinator for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's Whale Sense program. She saw a video of the incident. The whale certainly felt that contact, probably didn't feel good. The calf's name is Cinder. Cinder is about six months old and 18 to 20 feet long. Its mother is Flame, a Juno regular that Tierlink describes as a, quote, super mother. Flame has brought four calves back to Juno in four years, when a calf every two or three years is more typical. But Tierlink says this latest calf is a little too interested in people. We've been getting reports about it being very curious and coming up to boats and um, being interested in the boat and the passengers, spy hopping, um, you know, weaving underneath the boat, blowing bubbles, that kind of a thing. Tierling says video of the August 11th incident showed the calf rolling against the boat, which was idling. Since then, NOAA researchers have seen Cinder out and about and acting normally. But Tierlink is concerned about the consequences of the behavior to the calf and to anyone who encounters it. I was really trying to emphasize you know, these are huge animals, and even just a, a small interaction could be uh, really harmful to anyone involved. Tierling says this kind of curiosity isn't super rare in whale calves, but encountering, encountering curious whales calls for more caution and for giving such whales as much space as possible. I don't want people rushing out there trying to have that experience. Tierling says it's best to stay 100 yards away from whales and to idle if a whale comes closer. And with curious whales like Cinder, it might be a good idea to think of a way to start backing away safely. And that's all for Raven News for this hour. You can listen to or read